0: The problem is not that there are not enough lions. The problem is that there's not enough lion habitat. I just looked at him, I said, what'd you think of that? And he was like, that's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I was like, good, because I thought I was starting to become a pussy or something. (laughs) We probably wouldn't want a bunch of mountain lions walking around in our backyard eating our pets if there wasn't a reason to keep them there. It's a different kind of hunting show. Not all the episodes have hunting. There's a very heavy conservation component. Hi, this is Dan Cabela, and I'm the executive director of the Cabela Family Foundation. You're listening to the Wild Initiative Podcast.
1: Put down your latte and pull on your boots. There's a lot of people that can pull the trigger on an animal, but they don't know what to do with
2: it after. If you would have told me that a stupid turkey was going to make me get that excited, I'd have told you you were
0: crazy. It's just a skill that you have to perfect over a lot of years.
2: Hunting is
1: a tribal activity. We've lost the tribe. We can't even hunt together anymore. Well, the people that are anti-hunting are usually pro-abortion. So kill the people, save the animals.
2: I just remember riding my horse back to camp with the Northern Lights and the moose behind me and I'm like, this is why I've done this. This is as cool as an experience as I will get.
0: Hi, this is Jim Shockey.
2: This is Sam Soholt, the public land bus guy. Hi, I'm Kimmy GreenTree. Hi, this is South Cox with the Western Bowhunter Podcast. Hey, this is Ben Dedamonte, a.k.a. Shed Crazy.
1: You're listening to The Wild Initiative.
2: Hey, all welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Podcast Network.
0: Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment
2: All right, y'all hopping on to today's episode, super excited to have Dan Cabela, uh, executive director of the Cabela Family Foundation here on the podcast with me. We had uh, we went back and forth for a while with some scheduling, but we we're finally able to get it done. Dan, I'm so glad we were able to sit down and uh, have this conversation.
0: I am as well. I, I do apologize for for rescheduling a couple of times. Uh, wasn't intended, but uh, I'm looking forward to this morning.
2: Well, I'm more than happy to have you on. Like I said, you know, I always like to kick things off with a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, who you are, but especially from the perspective of how did you get introduced to hunting and the outdoors and really what grew that passion for you?
0: Well, I've kind of been surrounded by that my whole life. You know, my, my father started Cabela Sporting Goods in 1961 and so you know that's always kind of been around around me since from birth really uh i was born six years after they started the company and started hunting very young when i was younger we we mostly hunted uh waterfowl and, and upland birds I don't know the exact year that I started going with, with the older guys, but I I would guess, you know, I was probably five or six years old and uh, we would go out and we'd hunt geese and, and uh, I'd have my little uh, red rider BB gun while they had all their (laughs) shotguns. (laughs) And uh, you know, it, it was always great, you know, the camaraderie with all my uncles and my dad and his friends and my older brothers. And we'd pull back the lids, as the geese were starting to set their wings and everybody would start shooting and I'd shoot my one-shot BB gun and everybody <laughs> be like, great shot, you got that one. <laughs> I was <know>?
2: going <laughs> to say, you're probably, you're convinced that you're the one that took out that one yeah.
0: goose you're aiming at. And, 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 you know, it took probably 15 years to realize that wasn't the case. <laughs> but, but, but that's kind of where it all started. I, I really didn't start my big game journey, I, I mean, in full force, really, probably till I was in my early 20s. So, so mostly I hunted ducks, geese, doves, did a lot of fishing, and then um, I moved to Texas. I went to the University of Texas, and uh, there was a lot of hunting opportunities in Texas, a lot more than Nebraska, and, you know, started doing a lot of whitetail hunting, and the next thing you knew, I was deep into it and doing it all the time, and still am.
2: So would it be fair to say that you have also a huge passion for Africa and hunting out there as well?
0: Absolutely. Um, I don't know how many times I've been to Africa, but I know that from 2000 to now, there's only been two years where I haven't done at least one, one trip over there. One was COVID Mm -hmm. and the other is actually this year. So twice in that span. So
2: what, you know, it took you from from this kid that, that's hunting small game and waterfowl and upland game, and you know, chasing white tail and all that, to this passion for Africa, for going abroad, and and for the conservation that comes along with that.
0: I, w- I would say my my folks really. Um, y- y- I resisted it for a long time, to be honest with you. I just thought I was a deer hunter and and uh, and like hunting in North America and. They kept inviting me to go and telling me how much I was missing out by always refusing. And then uh, I finally decided to go on a trip to Zimbabwe. My wife and I went and it was a life changing experience for sure. I mean, like I said, I, that first trip, I just kept going back and I'm still going back. It's, it's an incredible place. It's, it's different. You know, every, every is a little different, but, when I think of hunting over there, you know, people always ask, you know, what is your favorite hunt that you've ever done? Well, I can't really answer that. I I would say I've had favorite moments, you know, when you do a really difficult hunt that that I think rises up on your list of hunts, but it's different. You know, you, 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 you really, you really remember that hunt because it was difficult. But when I think of Africa, it's, it's not that it's difficult. It's that it's fun. I mean, They're fun hunts, you know, they're social, you're with people, you split up and go hunting during the day, you come back together at night and have big meals and drinks and hang out and tell everyone what you did that day. And I think the funnest hunting I've done is in Africa. I'm not saying those are my favorite hunts, but they're the funnest. (laughs) You know, I really get that. And it's,
2: I've, I've never, I've never been to Africa that's that's not my passion, and what I would love to go out and one of these days I know I will, but you know my passion's always been the North American big game. That's just what I'm obsessed with and where I want to hunt. But it wasn't until I went down. It was actually in Texas. I went down to uh, Tim Fallon invited me out to FTW, and I went down, and he kind of gives you the full kind of like African hunting lodge experience when you're down there. And you, like you said, you all go out and you do some hunting, you know, with your, here, their guides, uh, the, you know, they're your PHs out in, out in Africa. And, and you come back and you have you know, you have some drinks and you sit around and you talk about what you did during the day and you laugh and you have a great time. And then you go out and do it again the next day. And I was like, I I get it now. Like, I, I, I mean, it's only a small sliver, I'm sure of what it's, what it's actually like out there, but I'm like, I get this experience and I've, I've always been the type of person where I, I want to have all the hunting experiences I can. I don't care again, like if it's archery hunting, you know, running elk in the, in the mountains by myself, or if it's going down, yeah, do a high fence ranch in Texas and getting a chance to have this cool other experience i want to have as many hunting experiences as possible
0: i would totally agree with that and i think we're we have a lot in common there i i feel the same way i uh, one thing also i think that you know i'm, I'm going on a doll sheep here, hunt here in, in a few weeks and you know that's basically going to be me and one guy you know for 10 to 12 days which is cool and and it's somebody i know so it's going to be great but in in africa you know sometimes we'll bring 20 30 people you know, so it's a totally different deal. It, you know, it's much more social. You've got, you know, usually with our family, there's sometimes three generations of people present and it's, and, and it's really a lot of fun and you, you get to spend quality time when you're hunting and even when you're not hunting. So, uh, you know, I kind of cherish those moments.
2: You know, that's uh, it, that's such a huge thing. Getting getting to have all those generations together and, and hunting together and that community and keeping the family together in that way. That's, that's really, really exciting. Um, so, you know, not only is it the, the hunting in Africa, but you do a lot for, and, and I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say this as if they're separate things, but because they're so inextricably intertwined is the idea of conservation in Africa and how it ties back and hunting and how that, that all relates. You do a whole lot. The Cabela Family Foundation does a whole lot for conservation out in Africa.
0: Yeah, we've, we've done uh, in Africa specifically, we, we do some stuff here, too. Uh, there, the, a couple of the projects we've done in Africa that have gotten a lot of notoriety just, just because they're, you know, charismatic species, uh, you know. So, yeah, we reintroduced um, 24 lions to the Zambezi Delta, which had lions before the Civil War in Mozambique. And basically, that area had been repopulated with all of its wildlife abundance, except for apex predators. You know, the apex predators never recolonized that area. Um, most everything was poached out during the Civil War. But but all of the, all of the antelope came back in, the, in their record numbers now, but uh, no lions, per se. So we decided, you know, that there was two million acres there we wanted to try to restore it to the way that it, that it was and the way that it should be. So in 2018, we sourced 24 lions out of South Africa, different different reserves and, and uh, got the permits and loaded them on planes and got through customs and flew them <laughs> into Katata 11. And, and we put them in Bomas, which are kind of holding fenced in areas. Uh, that were separated so they could all get to know each other through the fence, kept them in there for a month or so, and then uh, let them out. And there's about 75 lions there now. So, so they've done very well. So uh,
2: have they, you seen an effect on the rest of the fauna in the area other than, because obviously there's been plenty of growth in with the lions. Have you seen any other changes in the area with the rest of the animals, anything like that?
0: Not not really as of yet. They, they seem to be preying primarily on uh, reed buck and warthog. They do occasionally take down Cape buffalo and, and water buck and things like that as well. But there are so many reed buck and, and uh, warthogs in that area that, that there hasn't been anything, any kind of decline noticed. Now, you know, as that population grows, you know, that's something that's going to have to be reassessed over time yeah I, I guess you know in a perfect world uh you, you know there will be enough of them there at some point that uh that you know some will have to be taken out because of because there's too many you know and and then and if the, and when we get to that point that you know then the funding no longer has to come from the Cabela family foundation uh, then it's self-funding i think that that's when you know you've really had success well i
2: mean that's That's kind of the, like you said, that's when you know you've had success. That's the eventual goal to where you can implement hunting or other, other resources to then help fund that. So, like you said, it becomes self-sustaining. I think that's important to note. That's one of the reasons why hunting and conservation in a lot of these places are so inextricably linked. It's the idea of creating that value for the wildlife where it becomes self-sustaining rather than, I don't want to say a burden, but a drain on existing resources.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the problem is not that there are not enough lions. The problem is that there's not enough lion habitat. And so with 2 million acres, I mean, that's a vast piece of land. And you don't have to agree with hunting, but where else are you going to find vast spaces like that that are functioning ecosystems where, you know, the community is benefiting, the outfitter is benefiting, the wildlife is benefiting. So it makes sense to keep it. I mean, it, it, and that, you know, that's not just Africa. I mean, that's that's North America. That's Asia. That's everywhere. They, mm-hmm. they, they do it differently, but it's still vast areas that that use hunting and conservation to keep them intact
2: and it's i i was just reading uh it it just popped up earlier this morning and i i meant to save it but i accidentally closed out the window but i was just reading an article pretty sure it was a recent article about um to some extent just the opposite happening where the you know there's the idea of social carrying capacity versus environmental carrying capacity there's how much how many animals the land can can support versus how many animals the people can socially stand having around before they become a nuisance and a problem. And the social caring capacity was pretty low for this area because the local communities and tribes, these lions were becoming a nuisance. And I think the, the government ended up having to kill for these lions. They gave them to the tribe, the tribe ate the lions, but it's, it's the idea of those lions didn't have value otherwise. Cause they, they couldn't be hunted. So there's, there was no value. They were a nuisance at that point. So they got killed off, you know, because there's no habitat for them. They were a problem hunting adds so much value and it gives a reason to have this habitat, these wide open spaces as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and, and if the community benefits from the wildlife, then the wildlife will continue to exist. I mean, I mean, you know, We probably wouldn't want a bunch of mountain lions walking around in our backyard eating our pets and things if if there wasn't a reason to keep them there. You you know, it's uh, it's pretty simple actually. I mean, there has to be a benefit, especially in marginal lands, to the people that live there. Otherwise, they're going to kill it or they're going to eat it. That that's how they will get the value out of it. Uh, But but if you if you make it an impact on them. And they have you know some sense of ownership in the whole thing, then that wildlife will will flourish and and i and I think that that model can be applied in a lot of places
2: and it in the places it has been applied it's clearly shows results you know you compare it to a lot of these places where it's very similar to the the North American model where hunting the money from these hunts goes back into conservation and and protecting habitat it, it, uh, into those local communities as well, turning those people that may be poaching those animals to put food on their plates or or clear out habitat so they can farm there, turns those same people into advocates for that wildlife and protectors of it. And you see those results across several several countries in Africa, here in North America, uh, in a lot of places with similar, similar systems. And then you see countries just a few hundred miles away (laughs) that should in theory have this same amount of wildlife, but they've banned hunting and they protect these species and there's almost no wildlife outside of those preserves. It's just all decimated.
0: No, that's true. I think it's, you know, there, there are different systems in, in different places, but when you get down to the core of, of, you know, an animal that has no use to humans, has no future. I mean, I hate to put it, I hate to put it that way, but it really is the truth. If you think about it, I mean, there's almost 8 billion people on the planet now. I mean, uh, wildlife has to have a value in order for, for it to have a place. And I think, you know, in a lot of places, a lot of areas, we're doing a great job with that. I think we do a great job in North America. Hopefully that continues.
2: What do you see, I mean, I, this is going to be a super <laughs> broad question, I guess, but do you have hope for the wildlife just in the world, like across the board? Because we see, yeah, we've got it locked down somewhat in North America, but there's still all kinds of challenges and struggles with that. There's challenges and struggles when it comes to Africa as well. You know, what do you see as the future? How hopeful are you for the future of wildlife in, the, in these places we love?
0: Well, I'm, I'm very hopeful but I think it's a, it's a difficult scenario. I I mean, when you just look at the population expansion of, of humans, uh, that puts a lot of pressure on things. Um, and I don't know that there is an answer for any of that other than, other than trying to preserve the places that are still there. You know, I I don't think in our lifetimes, most of this is going away, but you know, you got to wonder in future generations, uh, and like I said, marginal lands. I mean, they're, they're, that's where the biggest population explosions are. So more people, less food. Uh, it de- definitely has impact. And I
2: mean, so I mean, so much of what we do uh, really is for future generations and posterity. I mean, yeah, to some extent there, you know, we'll see some changes in our lifetime. You know, you you work on projects and and you see, you know, whether maybe it's elk or sheep transplantation into uh, some of their old territory where they they no longer uh, no longer exist or you'll see some results like that like with the lions you know you've seen that that population triple but you know so much of what we do is for future generations like you know I don't get excited about elk conservation because I think it's going to get me You know, me donating to RMEF or SCI, that's not going to get me, you know, a a better chance at at killing an elk this year. It's not going to suddenly blow up these populations enough to where I can I can hunt them. No, it's it's for 50, 60, 70 years down the line. You know when my kids are old enough in hunting or if i have grandkids someday you know if they're uh if they're up and hunting so they can experience these same things and and hunt these animals
0: absolutely and and i, and I think the, the the vast majority of, of us feel that way i mean passing it down is 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 just so important to our community and and our, and our heritage really and i think that um you know, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about this stuff. (laughs) I mean, I really love doing it. So, I mean, but, but to me, I I feel a sense that there, there are changes happening. It just feels that way to me. Uh, Things I've read, things I've followed uh, projects that are going on, even things, uh, you know, different governments and things that are happening uh, it feels like there is a little bit of a swing all of a sudden. Um, I, I, I think the timing is, is, is very good right now for hunting and wildlife. You know, uh, I think we're at a point right now where, where a lot of people are actually wanting to understand more of why we do this. Uh, I think we went through a period not long ago where people were pushing us off, but I think minds are starting to open up and, and change is happening.
2: Well, I think there's a huge shift in, in hunting media where, you know, I'm sure you, you grew up with the whole ordering monster bucks VHS tapes and it's just like kill shot, kill shot, kill shot, right. like <laughs> the big box. And which is awesome. And I, I always say, don't get me wrong. Like I love hopping on YouTube and watching like a compilation of elk, just getting laid out. Like that'll get me pumped up for the season. Um, but there's been such a shift in in media in telling the whole story and people being interested in the whole story and the struggle and the uh, you know the the realism of of hiking through the mountains for for 10 days and maybe seeing an elk maybe not or you know what you do with the meat afterwards the processing the pack out the sharing that food with your neighbors or your or you know the community there's so much sharing of all that information that I think it there's more to cue people's interest.
0: I think you're right. And um, I think the problem is for people that, you know, are a little older like me is that we took for granted that people just understood all that. It's pretty simple stuff that we've always done. You know, we've always eaten the meat. We've, we've always shared the meat. We've always worked hard for our, our game you fail a lot more than you succeed. And, and, and I just think we took for granted for a long time that that was understood. And, and I think at one time it was, but over time it became more about what, like you said, more about kill shots and big bucks and trophies. and. Well, and when you, when you watch that versus say, you
2: know, some, some random guy out in New Jersey or something, when you watch that, you understand a lot of the work that did go into that you know, whatever that, that five minute clip of, of the deer coming in. And, you know, he takes a shot and the heavy breathing and excitement afterwards and they go and they take the picture. You understand every, you've seen everything that comes before that comes after it. So it doesn't need to be explained to you. And I think it's like you said, you know, so, so many people have taken that for granted that you just assume everyone, everyone knows that versus, you know, homie in New Jersey, he, he, uh, he's never experienced that. Never, never seen that. And that's, uh, there's nothing wrong with sharing those, but the audience has expanded and changed.
0: Right. So, so, you know, if you take a person who's never hunted and, and they're watching a, uh, a show that's 30 minutes and 10 minutes of it are ads. So you got 20 minutes. It's probably a three to five day hunt, but everything happens in 10 minutes. And so it appears that, that it's different than what it really is. You know, I mean, I I mean, I'm not saying I've never had a a hunt that went quick. I've had several hunts that went quick, but I've also had many that didn't go quick and many that were failures, you know, I mean, which is fine. I I mean, any day in the woods for me is a great one. I'd, Whether I succeed or don't, I mean, I've never, I don't know if I've ever had a bad wilderness experience. And, and uh, I mean, I've had some rough ones, but that doesn't mean they were bad. They were, they were great. Afterwards, after I could get home for a (laughs) couple of days and think about it. (laughs) <laughs> type two fun. It's my, my favorite <laughs> phrase is type
2: two fun. <laughs> it's only fun when you get out of there alive.
0: Yeah, there's been a few where I've where I've said to people, I can't believe I just paid for that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, if you're type of fun if hunting, then I'm sure you've run into some, to put it mildly, puckering experiences on a on a hunt. Have you ever have you ever had one of those oh shoot moments where you're like, I'm not sure how this is going to turn out.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I don't know if I've had um, the most dangerous situations that I've been in have, have been more weather related and, and things like that. I, I, you know, I've had some close encounters with lots of animals, but but I wouldn't say they were, they were overly dangerous. Um, but I have been in some pretty serious weather situations where you're just like, wow. I mean, I, you know, what, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> why am I here? And when, what did I pay to come do this for? But then, you know, you get home for a month. You're like, that was actually really cool. I learned a lot about myself through that. So like what's a, you know, for
2: example, what's, uh, what's one of those situations where you really feel like you kind of discovered something about yourself, uh, because of a hunt that may not have been, uh, <laughs> fun. So fun in the time.
0: Well, uh, one particular hunt that comes to mind, I, I did, a, a moose and, and grizzly combo, in Alaska a few years ago. And uh, it was actually a very successful hunt, but <laughs> most of the time we didn't hunt because the weather was just, I mean, brutal. I, I, you know, wind blowing 80 miles an hour. And I think there was one period where, you know, we, we, we maybe came out of our tents uh, once to eat for per day for like three days because it was just so brutal. You couldn't even come out. Everything's floating in the tent and (laughs) you're hanging stuff up wherever you can. The funniest thing about it now at the time, it wasn't very funny, but, but, uh, I, I brought these, um, it was freezing and, and, and we were totally wet. Everything was wet, uh, in that kind of environment. I don't think there's anything made where you don't get wet. So everything you had was wet. (laughs) Um, but I had this one pair of slippers that I brought and I kept them in a Ziploc bag and my feet were, were purple. I mean, I was freezing and, 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 uh, but I had this one little Coleman heater and I was in the tent one night and the wind's blowing like crazy. And, I had a book that I was reading for like the fourth time. My feet were freezing. So I put put my feet up by that Coleman heater and I was reading my book. And all of a sudden I smelt something. I looked up uh-huh. and the soles of those slippers were burning. <laughs> and so I remember taking them off, and I, you know, I'm there by myself and I'm trying to push the rubber back together. <laughs> I mean, this moment of the only dry thing I have, I've trashed. <laughs> and it was, uh, yeah. So that, so that was a brutal hunt, but we did, you know, shot a or moose early in the hunt, but I think day two, uh, before the weather hit the weather actually hit as we were skinning and quartering it. Oh. Um, and then that was from then that was brutal, you know, taking the moose back to camp and, you know, I fell in a river at one point And so then I was even more wet. Uh, I thought I could jump it, but my jumping skills weren't that good. So,
2: <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't care how good of a jumper You're, you, after you're packing it when you're packing out an animal and you're tired you need to have the amount you like <laughs> there's just no way there's no no creek that is safe i don't care if it's a little little trickle you're falling in that if you try you yeah. know, right? I mean, it's just a guarantee when you when you're packing out an animal
0: yeah but i, w- I would say that was and i and i remember I, my brother went on that hunt we didn't hunt together we were split into different spike camps but but uh when we got back to Bethel, he walked in, uh, I, I got back a day before he did and he walked in and he looked like death. Uh, and I'm sure that's <laughs> what I looked like too. when I came out and I, and I just looked at him. I said, what'd you think of that? And he was like, that's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I was like, good. Cause I thought I was starting to become a pussy or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's,
2: you know, it's one of those fun, funny things that I've, I've talked about before you never know what you're capable of until you hit your top limit like and i i've I've started getting better about saying that's the hardest thing i've done yet you know or that's the most difficult thing i've done so far because you know there's always something else to try there's always a new adventure right
0: right right and I don't know how it is with you, but with me on, on, a, on a trip like the one I just talked about, it's the mental exhaustion. It's not the physical. It's the, it's the mental exhaustion. But but I mean, that's really, you know, that's a great experience. It was a great experience for me. It's a great experience for anyone to have to go through and, and deal with, with those trials and, and come out and then reflect on it and think about all the conversations you had in yourself in your head when you were sitting in a tent by yourself for three days and not talking to anyone. Um, I mean, I think, I think uh, as a hunter, we, we learn a lot in those situations. I mean, uh, uh, a lot internally, you know, about, about us. Um, at least I do. Well, I mean, think how much that affects uh,
2: and can improve the rest of your life you know when you're never going to be harder on yourself and and quicker to give up or I- any of that than when you're in a tent in Alaska completely soaked you know can't feel your toes you just lit your slippers on fire <laughs> and you know if if you don't give up in that situation when you're at home and and you're frustrated with something going on with your business or work or your your family and suddenly it puts all of those issues into a lot different of a perspective and it's like i didn't shoot i'm i'm struggling you know maybe you're struggling with finances or something you know somebody's struggling with finances out there and it's like i didn't give up in that tent why the hell am i going to give up now this is this is like, this is not life and death here. Like that, right. that may have been life and death at one right. point,
0: you know? No, I, I I agree. You know, even if you're not in a weather situation and say, you know, this doll sheep hunt, for instance, that I'm about to go on, Um, I, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I, that I was on a doll sheep hunt. Um, and some of those days were really brutal physically, not so much mentally, physically brutal. And, and, uh, but, but at some point you just have to give into it. I mean, you're not, you're not, you're not getting out of there, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. I mean, so so you know, you might as well ride it uh, as good as you can and fight through it and and and, and get it to the end. And when you do, it'll be totally fulfilling for you, you know, whether you get one or not.
2: It's, I think, you know, the only thing worse than like not filling a tag is not filling a tag because you gave up. Right. Like, if you. I mean, I hate using this phrase because it's so cliche. You know, if you leave it all on the mountain, Um, but like if you genuinely do, you leave it all out there. If you just, I mean, hammer yourself into the dirt trying to going after this thing and you don't fill that tag, you can still walk away with pride being like I achieved something because you did, you know, you killed it out there versus you get a little too frustrated and you just give up because it's it's too tiring, it's too hard, whatever. You've got to sit with that. Right. Every time you you remember that unfilled tag, you've got to sit with that and look at yourself in the mirror and be like, I gave up and I've been there. And I'm not saying like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm, I'm pretty much the most mentally tough guy. I am that's something I struggle with. Like I'm I am zero percent badass. <laughs> like,
0: I am. <laughs> You just got to fight through it you know yeah. i mean it, it, it is a struggle i mean but that's what makes it beautiful i mean the struggle is what makes it so cool and the unknown
2: yeah and you know it's you're gonna have days where it's a lot easier to to fight through that stuff you're gonna have days where it's a lot harder and you may give up just problem is just don't beat yourself up over it day after day after day fix that mistake next time for sure don't give up next time so so what's uh what are some of the other exciting projects that, that you've had a chance to work on, you know, whether they're in Africa or here in North America?
0: The, the first half of, um, of July. So I went down to Arkansas and we with the game and fish and we collared some black bear. Um, they're just now this year is going to be the first hunting season they've had, I think, in that area ever so so uh the numbers are coming up for sure and uh this will be a way for us to to monitor these bears and 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 also you know to know if they've been harvested because uh and, and to look at harvest data and harvest numbers and general health of the population so we spent we spent probably five days there i guess and you know i've we raise exotics in texas so so i've done a Good bit of darting, uh, and and also you know with the lions, obviously in the cheetahs, we 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 did some darting as well. But but I've never darted a bear, <laughs> <laughs> and I've never been a part a part of that process. And, and so that was all kind of a new experience to me, and it was it was pretty cool. They do it a lot differently than than we do uh, for good reasons. And and
2: uh, so what was the process with that out there?
0: Well, they use these um, these heavy gauge snares. But they're totally safe so they don't they don't damage the bear at all because they're not a thin wire snare they're a heavy gauge mm-hmm. and they put out baits and then there's game cameras on all the baits and uh you know when one gets caught you immediately go out there and knock it down and and if it's a female you put a collar on and if it's a male you uh, ear tag it and let it go okay
2: and so what have you seen uh that was beginning of june you said no, beginning of July,
0: just a couple of weeks ago. Oh,
2: okay. Okay. So yeah, so this is brand new and they're opening up that first season. So you're going to be probably seeing some stuff, yeah. some stuff moving around, some stuff happening.
0: And then seeing the data long-term, we'll follow up with that just, just, just to see what's going on. Um, and then immediately after that, we went to Florida and it wasn't really so much an initiative like with the bears or the lions, but it was more of a, uh, just looking at alligator conservation and. uh it, how through tourism and uh, meat production and hunting an animal that was put on the endangered species list in the 1960s is now at historic abundance again so that was pretty eye-opening we spent probably three or four days down there doing that we we collected uh we did egg collection and egg distribution to the farms and took a look at you know, some of the tourism and, and, and hunted hunted an alligator as well, you know, and, and actually that will be one of the hard truths episodes for season two.
2: That's one thing I never realized. Alligators were put on the endangered species list. That was one
0: that I never had any idea. Yeah, that was in the sixties. Um, and it's a little controversial depending on who you talk to. Some people don't think that they were ever should have been put on, but, but I think it's a remarkable story because, they weren't on there very long and they, they took them off. They don't normally take animals off once they get on there. So, uh, the alligator is, is a huge success story. And, and, you know, it's, it's definitely a North America icon, but it was pretty cool. I learned a lot, you know, a a lot that I didn't know. I'd never done egg collecting. I mean, that was pretty interesting going out in those airboats and we'd have choppers flying from the sky and they'd identify nests and then you'd have to go into them. And sometimes, the, the mom alligator wasn't very happy that you were there, and you know, so. I I can't imagine
2: that's uh the easiest experience when uh, mom alligator when you're trying to steal mom alligator's eggs.
0: No, no, I, and, and on quite a few of those nests, I was the one holding the pole, so you know, I had to try to keep her at bay. And sometimes you don't see them coming because it's pretty thick and mm-hmm. they hide pretty well in the water.
2: Oh that's one that's one thing i need to i need to get out there i want to do an alligator hunt that's one of my one of my bucket list ones for sure i gotta i gotta take a trip out get myself an osceola and an alligator and and do the do the florida thing for sure
0: yeah yeah i've I've done the osceola too that was that was a lot of fun as well so
2: um you kind of just mentioned it hard truths you know kind of what's uh what's coming up what should people keep an eye out for
0: Well, the series is going to launch on uh, August 20th and it is going to be on a major network. I cannot divulge that information because it's supposed to be timed at the beginning of August, but it's, it's a different kind of hunting show. Not all the episodes have hunting. There's a very uh, heavy conservation component. I mean, I would say that, you know, they're, they're 30 minute shows and, the actual hunt in one of those episodes might take three to four minutes. And then the rest of it is more about everything from why the species is important and and what it means from, from meat production to, you know, reintroducing lions and, and cheetahs and, and moving sheep. And, you know, so they've, they've all kind of got this conservation component. And then, and then many of them have a hunt as well, because that's part of the conservation story too.
2: That's awesome. And uh, so we can't, we can't talk about what network it's going to come on, but what's the date it's coming out again, August 20th. Will it, will it be announced on socials, everything? Where should, where should people keep an eye out for that?
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll announce it on social. There will be traditional press release as well. And the network will be doing uh, some promotions. So uh, we, we, we're very hopeful that, it, that it's a success. I think it, once again, I think the timing is good. I, th- I think this is, the kind of thing that a lot of people who don't know what we're about are are trying to learn. And I think uh, we have put a lot of effort into showing that in this series. That's awesome. So,
2: you know, I think a lot of the times people ask, uh, you know, okay, how can I get involved in conservation? You know, and I think the the easy token response is to be like, well, join conservation organizations, you know, become a member, donate, kind of get involved that way. And I think it's an easy token answer to say that for a lot of people, but say somebody wanted to really get involved in a more hands-on way conservation here in North America, conservation in Africa, get involved in some of these projects. What's a good, what's a good way to really more tangibly get involved?
0: Well, uh, on, on a local level, I would say that it would be, you know, you could volunteer. I mean, there, you know, there's lots of, you know, in Texas, there's lots of, whitetail capture and things like that. There's tons of exotic capture. I mean, uh, which, you know, it's not a North American animal, but it's still, uh, you know, a, a great ex- experience to be involved in. Um, I think on those levels, or, or even if you want to break it down even further, I mean, you know, for, for younger people, you know, getting 4-H or, or, or join, uh, you know, the, the Boy Scouts, uh, Different wilderness conservation-based programs. I I do think there is value to getting into organizations. It's just an indirect value, you know. You you don't necessarily feel that, but there are projects that happen all over the place. I know that we're doing a we're doing a a, a, a sheep study. Uh, the first part of August, and and I know that there because I've read the documents. There's people that that will be there that are more like volunteers that will be part of the. Of the process, so uh, you know I don't exactly know how to tell you how to connect those dots, but I think that they're there, you know. Um, and then I think you know, even even just getting out and hunting, obviously hiking, I mean, all all of those things. Uh, if if you're paying a, for a park sticker, I mean, you're doing something for conservation for sure. Um, once again you know, it's an indirect thing, but, but it is a real thing. And I think, I think the disconnect
2: comes so often from like, okay, I joined, you know, the mule deer foundation and I paid my, my yearly due. I got my, you know, my free pocket knife or whatever. Awesome. I'm doing conservation. It's like, okay. Yeah. Kind of, uh, <laughs> in a loose, loose sense of the term. But I think the disconnect so often comes from, we don't, then follow up. We don't find our local chapter. We don't reach out to the people. We don't, you know, ask them what they're doing, where the opportunities are, you know, or we just find one, one organization to become part of. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a member of the organization to reach out and see if they have any projects, if there's anything you can work on, if they can help.
0: Right. And I um, think if you're active also in those with those groups, you know, not not don't just become a member, you know, actually become active. And because if you're active and you're engaging with other like minded people, whether you serve on a committee or a board or whatever that might be, opportunities will come up just just through networking. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of that that happens a ton. Well, so many,
2: you know, whatever. I'm a, I'm a member of all these different organizations and the more projects I see come from someone I know I'm friends with outside of that organization. They just happen to also be a member of it and they're the one posting about it. Like I see that more often. I hear about it more from friends where, you know, say this one group is doing a fence cleanup on some public land or something like that. And it's, I never see, it's not like I get an email from that group or maybe I do and it just gets buried. that's probably more likely the case, but I see that from my friend. And I also know if my friend is posting about it, I trust that person. I know it's going to be something more valuable and worth, worth my time if they're advocating for it. It it kind of comes pre-approved almost if you will. So I think you're right. Making, making those connections and networking just with like-minded people that are have a passion for conservation. is huge.
0: Right. And then, and then by you, by your, by your friend using that social media platform to, to, to show that conservation work he's certainly not only hitting he or she is certainly not only hitting hunters which is which is great and that that's a very powerful aspect of of uh of social media is is it gives you the ability to actually show the good work that's being done and you know it it takes a few minutes and it's free and you can have real impact
2: it's absolutely huge so on that note, uh folks want to follow along, find uh you find the the foundation, any of this good stuff, where's the best place to you uh to find you
0: online? Uh org. It's got a lot of the projects on there. I, it probably needs to be updated. At these recent ones aren't on there yet, but but uh and then social media. The foundation's got a page on Facebook and on Instagram. And then I've got pages on both of those as well.
2: Fantastic. Well, Dan, I I really appreciate you sitting down, uh, taking the time. I'm glad we were able to get it scheduled. uh, Just uh, sharing a little bit with my listeners.
0: No, I've enjoyed it. It's been fun. I appreciate you having me on here. All right, y'all. That'll do it for this episode
2: of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Big thank you to Dan for taking the time out of his day to sit down with us. Make sure you give uh, Dan and the Cabela Family Foundation a follow on social media. Check out the website. Also, make sure you head on over to iTunes or Stitcher. Give the Wild Initiative podcast a quick rating and review. Y'all, this is super critical. It's just a couple minutes out of your day. And it helps so much with visibility for the podcast. I want to keep releasing these. Uh, keep seeing the podcast grow. But I need your help to do that so take a minute today head on over to itunes stitcher whatever platform you're listening on give a rating and review we greatly greatly appreciate that y'all that'll do it for this week looking forward to next time but until then i hope this episode inspired you to get involved get outdoors and plan your initiative for the wild
1: Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com. To get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from The Wild Initiative family, and more.